Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17, reading through verses 34. Verse 34. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one to your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men, two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But the crowd cried out, But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. We welcome you here this morning, and uh, as we come to this part of the Word of God, I want to ask you, even now, as the Lord would bring to your mind that you would pray uh, for Steve. Some of you recognize he was not here last week with his family. He is in last week in, on vacation this week. He is up in Virginia. Some of you have heard him talk about uh, his best friend, Matt Speck, who's a pastor up there. Matt's son graduated this weekend. Steve and his family went up to be with them in that graduation that he's preaching uh, in Matt's church this morning for him. So pray for him as he stands to proclaim the Word of God uh, there this morning. I think they'll be back this evening. So you lift them up uh, in that. Also want to ask you to be in prayer for the many that are uh, sick in our church and for obvious reasons then not here today. As we come to the close of our service, I ask you as you go just to pray for, for them. When I was a child, we used to vacation at Myrtle Beach, and I'm not sure uh, how many of you spent time going to a beach growing up. Uh, we went to Myrtle Beach. I think around here, if I would have grown up in this area, we would have rarely ever gone to Myrtle Beach because the beaches of North Carolina are so much more beautiful uh, than Myrtle Beach, and I love going out there. But we grew up going to Myrtle Beach, and more specifically, we stayed in a house down on the south side of Myrtle Beach in Surfside. And uh, there was a house down there that we uh, rented 
year after year and we went there, but sometime during our vacation, one of the evenings or whatever during our vacation, we had to make a trip up to what was called the pavilion at Myrtle Beach. Now, if you've ever been down there, you'd had to go on years ago to know what the pavilion is. I think it's torn down now. They've put something else in its place. But the pavilion was just a place where everybody kind of gathered together, had some rides and some amusement type stuff. And my whole family went there every year when we went to Myrtle Beach. And for the life of me, I can't remember why I liked going, but I know everybody else in the family liked going. My mom liked to go for a couple of reasons. At the pavilion, they had a big carousel, and my mom has been fascinated with carousels all her life. She loved riding them. And then they had this little area that had an organ in it, and you could sit, and this organ would play itself, and all these little things would happen as the organ played. She loved watching that. Uh, my sister, who is about two and a half years older than me, uh, it was very clear if you talked to her when we were young going to the beach that she wanted to go to the pavilion uh, to see boys. Uh, she just wanted to see whoever was there and to, to see them. My dad, I think he just went to make the family happy. And I went because everybody else went. Even then, uh, I tell you, as I'm getting older, this is getting more and more uh, a part of my life. I don't like crowds. And even when I was a teenager, I didn't like being around crowds. I just assumed not go if it was going to be a crowd. So now as we have children, if we go to the state fair, the moment we get out of the car, I'm ready to leave. Uh, because I don't really like the crowds. But there was one part of the pavilion that I'll never forget, and I really remember it even to this day, and I loved it when I was there. I wanted to go by this little area that had all kinds of different things to look at, but there were a series of mirrors. And the only thing that I know them to know to call them for you today is distortion mirrors. Some of you have certainly seen them. I think some people may even call them carnival mirrors, right? So you stand in front of one and uh, it makes you really, really wide and really, really short, or you stand in front of one and it kind of twists you all and you're in this uh, curly cue. But these distortion mirrors were things that I loved to look at, whether it made you really tall, really wide, or uh, compact you really down. Uh, all kinds of things. It was distorting the view that uh, a normal mirror, you look in a normal mirror, you know that's the, the reflection I see is of me, and this would distort that. If you're part of the younger generation in here, perhaps you've never seen one of those distortion mirrors, but you do know, because in our day, here's what my children do, uh, you take our mobile devices and take a picture, and you can put a filter on that and distort the picture. And so we love doing that in my house. Sarah figured that out first on our uh, mobile devices and she loved doing it. And then Anna is now doing it. She will take a picture of herself or anybody else. As a matter of fact, my mother-in-law was at my house a couple of weeks ago and now I have pictures on my computer that I could not ever share with you or I would not be invited home uh, for Thanksgiving dinner if you saw the pictures I have of my mother-in-law with the distortions that they've put on them. I asked my children if I could just show you what they do. And Sarah graciously said, Daddy, you can show the picture that I did. So she took these pictures and then made them do this weird stuff with her face, and it distorted. The question this morning is, as you look at these pictures, or you see yourself in a carnival mirror that really messes you up, is, does reality matter? And I would say to you this morning that seeing what is really there matters. And I want to ask you further, is what we're looking at in our lives, the world around us in our lives, is it really a reflection of reality or is it somehow distorted? I think the passage that we just read together has everything to do with sight. Not just because Jesus 
heals two blind men at the end of the passage, but because the disciples are yet again showing us how really, truly blind they are to what the reality of Christ is. Why Jesus came, what He came to do, and what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And listen to me, church. The only reason that Matthew would be writing this to us is that you and I are prone to see things not as they really are, not as the purpose of why Jesus came. We're prone to look at our lives and see them in distorted ways, and we need someone to correct our vision. And so this morning as we begin looking at this text, I want to ask this question to you. What if we were able to capture what you believe about life in a photo and put it on the screen before us? What you believe about your life, what you believe about the world around you, what you believe about reality. If we were able to capture that in a photo, would it look more like these distorted photos that Sarah graciously shared with us, looking in a carnival mirror, or would it look like what Jesus really wants us to see in our lives and in reality. So the question of the text this morning really is this, do you see? And I want to just say this at the beginning, that apart from, apart from the vision-transforming work of Christ in your life and mine, our view of reality and our view of our own lives will be just as skewed as looking at our reflection in one of those carnival mirrors. And we might be told or prone to think that is normal, but I want us to see as followers of Christ that when we see reality through some kind of lens that distorts the way that God made reality and what, how your life fits into that, then you are blinded to the truth of reality. And so Matthew is writing a gospel to us to show us, here's what you're looking at. Now hold your life up in front of that and understand your life as it is meant to be understood. So here's my question. Do you see? At the end of this section in Matthew's Gospel, and we are concluding a section in Matthew's Gospel today at the end of chapter 20. At the end of this section, Matthew is showing us that the disciples are still blinded and have to be confronted yet again by Jesus while two blind men sitting on the side of the street see clearly who Jesus is. So my prayer for us today is that before you leave this place, you will be crying out, just as these blind men, no matter who silences you, you would be crying out, Jesus, give us sight. Help us to see reality through your eyes, through the way that you would want us to understand life. To do so, though, we must recognize today that our vision is indeed distorted apart from Christ. And you must then believe that Jesus can correct your vision. And if so, you'll come to Him, just as these blind men begging Him to give you sight. So today's passage is, if I could say it this way, an eye exam of sorts. Your spiritual vision. How are you seeing? I'll never forget the time when I was in fourth grade. I was 
told by my, I was sent home with a note by my teacher that said to my mom, I have moved Stephen to the front of the room and he is still slow at taking his notes. And I don't think he's a slow student, although some of you might think, well, I'll tell you why he was slow, but that's another day. Another story. She moved me to the front of the room. I was still not taking my notes, keeping up with other students. So she said, would you take him and just get his eyes checked? Because I think that he may not be able to see well. My mom took me to the doctor. Doctor I went through, went to through all of my uh, teenage years. Dr. Lighty, he showed me the first time I sat in his uh, eye doctor chair, he had a, a, a chart on the wall. No doubt you've seen a chart just like this. And he said, Stephen, could you read the smallest letters on that chart that are clear to you? And I said, E. And he said, okay, would you read the uh, uh, smallest letters that you can actually make out on that chart? And I said, E. And he said, okay, I think we probably have a problem. So at that point, he took me through this eye exam and knew that I needed to have my vision corrected, that I needed to have lenses through which I could see what was on his chart. And so this morning, I want to just ask us, as we come to this text, Matthew is going to ask us some questions, I think, from the text about our own spiritual sight and give us a true eye exam. There are three questions in our eye exam this morning, and I want to ask them to you. Number one, do you know what you're looking at? Do you know what you're looking at? Uh, I'm not going to ask him to do this, but if you would back up to that chart, and you would see there's an E, and then there's F and P, and some other uh, uh, letters down through there. If I were to ask you to read those letters and you were um, from another country and you had never seen the English alphabet, you would not even know that that was an E. Somebody at some point had to teach you what E looks like, what F looks like, what P and all the alphabets so that you could even read that chart. And so the first question I want to ask us, and I think our text addresses is, do you know even what you're looking at? And so on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to do what he has come to do, and that is to die for the sins of man. He is going to remind the disciples of the central truth of all of reality. You see, you couldn't put that chart in front of a nine-month-old and say, what are these letters, and expect to hear something from them. They don't know what they are. And so for the fourth time in Matthew's gospel, in verses 17 through 19, on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus reminds the disciples of the central truth of all of reality, which is his purpose for coming. The death, burial, resurrection of Christ is the center of all of time. If you and I understand what the Word of God is teaching us, and that is, this is God God's creation, it is His story, and it's all focused on the glory of the Son because the Son came to redeem a lost mankind so that He would receive glory and the grace and immeasurable riches of His love throughout all eternity, then you and I will get our lives. But if we don't even know what we're looking at, how are we ever going to have true spiritual sight? And so this morning, I want to remind you just briefly from what you see on the screen, the central truth of all reality is the God. And that is that God created all things, and this includes man. He created man in his own image. But there's a problem. Man rebelled against the Creator. And instead of living under the good rule of a good Creator, we rebelled and began to live on our 
own. God, being just, could not just ignore that rebellion. So there's a penalty for rebellion, rebelling against God, and that penalty is death. Rebelling against the Creator brings death. And so death entered into our world, and Paul in Romans said that death came in through one man, and by him all die. That is, you and I are under the curse of sin. We are born rebels, and we do indeed rebel. But the good news and the central truth of history, of reality, is that God sent His one and only Son to become a man and die, paying the price, death, the price for our rebellion and sin. And so now He invites us then to turn from sin, trust in Jesus as our substitute. He put Himself in our place. So He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so in Him we inherit life. In other words, He takes our penalty. So here's what He calls us to do. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin and self and believe in Him. So it leaves only one thing for you and I to decide. And that is, will will we renounce our rebellious selves and trust in Jesus? Or will we renounce Jesus and trust in us? And you see, that decision in your life, knowing that that is what the world is about, knowing that's what reality is about and your life is about, what you and I need to understand today is that if we get that this is what life, reality is about, then it changes everything. It changes the way that I see everything in my life. My relationships, my own life, my job, my purpose, it changes everything. Everything. So here in this text, Jesus gives the disciples more details about his purpose when he says, as they're going up, the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes. That's the Sanhedrin. He's going to stand trial there, which the next statement talks about, and they will condemn him to death. There is a sense there under the word condemn that there's a trial, and Jesus has been condemned in that trial. But because the Sanhedrin, the Jews, could not kill, Anyone for, uh, even in their courts, they would have to turn him over to the Romans. And so verse 19, they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. Jesus, before his death, says, here's why I came. Here's what's going to happen. Let me explain to you what you're getting ready to look at. So Jesus is saying, this is reality. I have come to fulfill the purpose of God. And the purpose of God is that Jesus would die for sin. So church, let me ask you this morning, that first question, do you know what you're looking at? Do you know what your life is about? You see, I think that you and I must understand if it is about anything other than glorifying the Creator God whom we were rebels against, then we can look at everything, but everything is going to be distorted. We're not going to see clearly what life, my life, your life is about. So that leads me to the second question. If now you know that all of reality is about God and His plan, His purpose, it's His story, then secondly, what lens are you looking through? Question number two in this spiritual exam. What lens are you looking through in your life? When I was getting my eye exam, I would sit down. I, I, I just vaguely remember the first uh, eye exam, but now I have to have them yearly as well. Those of you who wear glasses know you're supposed to go back to the doctor year after year. So I would sit down in the eye doctor's chair. She puts 
uh, piece of equipment in front of you and says, put your chin here. Now, let's get over the whole problem I have with putting my chin where I think everybody else's chin has been. She's just taken a little uh, alcohol swab and wiped it. I can't stand that. But I put my chin there, and she puts these lenses in front of my eyes, and she says, is one or two clear? And I have to guess which one is clear. And then she says, three or four. And if I say four, she says, well, how about one or four? And then she does that for like 15, 20 minutes. I think it's because I keep getting the answer wrong. And she keeps going back and forth and putting lenses. And what are they doing? The lenses, listen, are defining and clarifying what I'm actually looking at on the other side, the chart that we were seeing. The lenses do that. And so this morning, as we come to this text and we come to this next section, I want you to know as you look at life... In my example, the chart, there are lenses that you're looking at that define and clarify what you are looking at. And the key to your life is, how are they clarifying? What are they doing to the reality that you see? Here in the text, just after Jesus reminds us of what we're seeing in our life, He reminds us that we look at our lives and all of reality through a particular lens. And I want you to see this morning from this that there really are, through these reality lenses, what helps you see reality, there are two truths I want you to understand about that. Number one, everyone looks at reality through a particular lens. You are looking at your life and you are interpreting it through a lens. And that lens is clarifying and defining what you see. So if you lose your job, you have a problem in your relationship, you have a financial struggle, some big event happens in your life, you're defining and clarifying that through some lens in your life. But then secondly, I want you to know there's only one lens that correctly defines and clarifies our vision. And we're going to see that in the text. But I want to ask you before we get there, what lens are you looking through? What lens are you looking through? To help put this section in perspective this morning, I just want to give you very briefly five major lenses that people use to view reality. We've already dealt with some of these in these very chapters. The first one is pleasure. Pleasure. What makes me happy? What may be physical pleasure for some, and you and I know those that we could call up and they have an addiction to some illegal substance and that's controlling their life. And if that's what's controlling your life, then you need to get rid of that. There are things that we need to do. But you see, if some substance is controlling your life, you see everything through that. So everything either helps you get that pleasure or stands in your way of that pleasure. But physical pleasure, addiction, it can be something other than physical. It can be pleasure internally. You might live your life to have some kind of internal peace. And so you're always seeking to feel comfortable or or happy internally. But pleasure is your lens. The second one is possessions. We just dealt with it last week. Excuse me, two weeks ago. Uh, uh, Possessions, money, material wealth drives everything. So I look at everything as, does it help me get this? Does it stand in my way of getting this? And so whether it's money or material things or, or some kind of possessions that we're living through, we see everything through that lens. The third one's approval. Some of you live for the approval of others. As I was sharing this story, one of our members came up to me after the 830 service and said, you know, that third lens you were talking about was the lens that I lived through. I wasn't so worried about seeing when I came out of the doctor physically from having glasses. He said, when I was going back to school, my big deal was I was going to be called four eyes. And I didn't care if they helped me see. I didn't want to put glasses on and wear them into class. Why? He was living for the approval. So everything that happened to him was through the lens of what are people going to think? 
think about me? How are they going to view me now? Some of us live through that. And the Bible uses that as a big temptation and a big idol in our lives. The approval of others. Some of us see everything in our life through pain. Maybe it's an experienced pain once in your life or maybe it's you're experiencing it now. For some, the pain doesn't even have to be real. It could be perceived or feared. I fear this kind of pain and so my entire life is shaped around me avoiding that kind of pain. Today our text deals with the fifth one up there and it's power. Position or influence or importance to others. I want power in my life. And so, go to the text as we come to that fifth one. Here, a mother of the sons of Zebedee, you will know them as James and John. Uh, Other places called the sons of thunder, although I think this may crash that kind of title that Luke gives them. The sons of thunder don't even come to Jesus. They ask their mama to go to Jesus and ask him the question that they want to ask. And so, their mother comes to Jesus and says, I want to ask you a question. And he says, what do you want? And she says, When you get into your kingdom, can my sons, one sit at your right and one sit at your left? Now, let me put it in perspective for you. They've been talking about the kingdom of God. In verse 28 of chapter 19, Jesus says that he will sit on a glorious throne and his disciples will sit on thrones and judge with him. They're on their way to Jerusalem. So there is probably an expectation by these very disciples that when we get to Jerusalem, the the city where we will, the capital city of Israel, we will take over and this will be a kingdom like no other. It'll be a kingdom like when David was king. And so there's an expectation that the kingdom is close. And so they say, hey, mommy, can you go ask Jesus if we can have power when he gets, can we sit at his right? Those are the positions of power in the kingdom, sitting at the right and the left of the king. And so look at Jesus' reply in verse 22. He says this, you don't even know what you're asking. What's he saying to them? Listen, You're looking at your life through the wrong lens. You're seeking after power and position. That's the wrong lens. You don't even understand the kingdom. You don't understand the suffering that's coming. And that's what he says as you read on in that verse. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? The cup is an Old Testament uh, image that always uh, uh, brings to mind suffering. Drinking the cup is drinking in, going through suffering. And so Jesus says, are you able to suffer the way that I'm going to suffer for you to sit in these places? Now look at the pride that they still have. Look at the confidence that these boys still have. Oh, we're able. Oh, we'll do it. We're there. We're willing to do everything. Why? Because we're looking through the lens of I gain power and position. Do you see how they're seeing all of reality through this one lens? And Jesus is saying, you're looking through the wrong lens. You have a distorted view of the kingdom. And I want to clarify your view. And that's exactly what he does. He tells them that suffering always comes with following. Now don't miss that because we're going we're gonna to end up at following Jesus whereas we're, as where Matthew has always been. Suffering comes along with following, not greatness. Suffering rather than greatness is what Jesus goes to. So Jesus states then to them, look at verse 23. They say, we're able. And so he says, well, you indeed will drink my cup. Just for the record, they get it eventually. Matthew is so brilliant in showing us that the disciples don't get it. 
And it helps us to identify with them. I told you this last week, church. I hope that you and I can identify with these disciples and understand if I'm looking at my life through the wrong mirror, Jesus can correct it. I need him to give me the lens to view my life. Here, it's good that James and John, they still don't get it. The disciples, they don't get it. But they will. If you read in Acts chapter 12, James is the first one who's killed by Herod. And he's killed with the sword. Why? Because he surrenders everything for Jesus. He gets it. And he will drink the cup of suffering for following Jesus. John is, uh, Revelation chapter 1, exiled to the island of Patmos. He's exiled for his faith. He gets it. He gives it all for Jesus. Church, the call this morning is for you and I to follow, to get it, to not live for these, to not see our lives through these lenses, but to see them through the lens of Christ and that this is His story and that we are His. It's His kingdom and we serve just like He served. And so Jesus is going to correct their vision, but verse 24 first, He's not just going to correct James and John's vision. Look at verse 24. When the disciples heard that James and John had gotten their mom to go ask Jesus this question, they are indignant. Why? They, I believe, just kind of think among themselves, why didn't we think of that? And so they probably criticize them all kinds of ways. How can you boys be so prideful? Man, I wish I'd have thought of that first. I wish I'd ask him. But they're indignant at them. And Jesus calls all of them to himself, and he says this. I'm going to paraphrase verse 25 and following. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of the earth. Because the kingdom that I'm coming to set up, I've already told you this, you've already heard this, is turning everything in the earth, all the principles of the earth, I'm turning them upside down in the kingdom. Instead of being focused on you, you're going to focus on others. If you want life, give your life up. If you want greatness, then serve others. If you want to be first, then be last. That's what he says to them. He says in verse 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Those who are great in the Gentile world, they rule and they want other people to serve them. In our world, it's the exact same. If you want to be great in our world, people will say, how many people do you have serving you? You see somebody drive up somewhere and they have servants all around them. They have people driving their car. They have people carrying their, uh, their bags. They have all this stuff. Oh, they must be great, really important people. And Jesus says, the, the rulers of the Gentile world, they rule it over them. Look at verse 26, emphatic, it shall not be so among you. What's he saying? The ways of the world are not the ways of the kingdom I'm declaring to you. And so he says, you're looking in the wrong mirror. The view that you have of greatness is distorted and I want to correct it. So Jesus exposes their lens and then he works to correct their vision. The, world, the, 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 the lens the world uses is not the lens that Jesus uses. And so you and I must understand what he's doing. He says, you want to be great? Then serve others. Become a slave. Look at what he says in verse 26. But whoever wants to, would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your servant. Slave. Don't let the confrontational manner of what Jesus is just saying to the disciples just roll off your back as something else you've heard since you were a kid. This is radical, church. It's radical. You want to be great, become a slave. Because the kingdom turns everything upside down. What he's saying is the mirror you're looking at your life through, 
pleasure, possessions, approval, pain, and power. It's distorting everything in your life. See your suffering. See your triumphs. See your relationships. See your job. See your finances. See your talents. See everything in your life through the lens of Jesus, I've died to me. They belong to you. Become a servant of others. You see, even in our world, church, even in our church, we define greatness by prominence. Jesus defines greatness by, greatness by service. So the question this morning is, will you acknowledge the lens through which you see reality? Now, he doesn't just stop there, does he? Jesus says, let me show you the details. Because I'm not just telling you greatness is service. Jesus says, I'm going to show you. Verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served. The church, this is the God of the universe. Taking on flesh. And God who could demand everyone. He could walk into a room and just exude His Godhead. And you would fall on your, your face. Right? This is what happens throughout all of Scripture. When people see God or any part of His character, they fall on their face. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. Listen to the way Paul puts it in the book of Philippians. Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't hold on to it, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is our Savior. So you want to know what this looks like? Jesus says, I'm doing it. I'm not demanding you to serve me even though I'm God. I'm coming to give my life for you, to serve you. you see, Jesus reveals the lens through which you and I must understand life. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. The upside-down nature. They are seeking power, and Jesus is saying you're blind to real greatness. Instead of seeking power, then if you have eyes, seek to serve. You see, but you and I, if we're honest today, our vision is very often still distorted. We seek pleasure and approval and power and possessions. And we are blinded to what real life is. And Jesus says, die to self, seek to serve. You see, Jesus' own life, burial, and resurrection gives us eyes to see. In other words, church, listen, the gospel corrects our vision, which is what Jesus says. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. You see, He's saying here, I've come to give. So for you, will you give your life? Which leads us to the third question. Matthew now relates the story of two men, physically blind, but who see very clearly, and Jesus will give them, and Jesus will, will give them their physical sight. So question three, will you allow Jesus to correct your vision. The last couple of times I've been at the eye doctor, I've been going since fourth grade, so for, you can add it up, too many years. I've been going to the eye doctor and getting exams. The last two times that I've been to the eye doctor, I get the same lady, I don't know why she talks to me the same way both times, she comes into the room, she says, Mr. Wade, you have an astigmatism now. And I said, what's an astigmatism? 
She says, well, it's kind of hard to explain, but essentially what's going to happen is you're going to find it really hard to drive at night. Uh, when it's raining, you're not going to be able to see really well because your nearsightedness and this mixing in together. And when the other motorists have their lights on, it's really going to blind you more, like lights are going to blind you more than they used to. And, um, and I said, well, great. She said, we can, the good news is we can correct it. And I said, great, you know, let's correct it. She said, the bad news is you're not going to be able to wear the kind of contacts you've been wearing for the last 30 years. We're going to have to change the kind of contacts. It's going to be a hard lens instead of that soft lens that you're used to. And I was like, I don't even like the soft lenses. The harder lenses are thicker. So I asked her very clearly, do I have to do this? Do I have to, do I have to correct that or can I just keep going the way I'm going? To which she responded, well, you really need to do it. Your eyes are bad enough where you need to do it, but I wouldn't say that you're going to lose your license over it. And I said, well, then why would I do it? She said, so you could see clearly. I said, but then I'd have to wear these new contacts. She said, well, yeah, it's the price you have to pay to be able to see. And I said, do I have to do it? She said, well, no, you don't have to do it. I said, then I think I'll hold off. So for two years, I have held off to getting my vision fully corrected because I don't want to change. Now, church, the reality is this morning, you may be looking at your life through any of these lenses and you get comfortable looking at your life through those lenses. You see, if you're seeking after pleasure, you keep seeking after pleasure because you've convinced yourself that's what's going to be. Give me true life. If you're seeking after possessions or power, you're going to keep doing those things. We get comfortable with the way things are and we don't want to change. We're really afraid of change. And so some of you are living with these lenses of approval or possession or or pleasure or pain or power, and you won't change. But in our text, this morning, the Lord Jesus comes to two people who recognize their blindness and they want to do something about it. So this morning, I come to the end of this message and ask, do you want to do something about the way that you're viewing reality? If you're not at a place where you're willing to serve, where you see your life given for others as an offering poured out for our Savior, the question then to see if you really do want your vision clarified is, will you allow Jesus to correct your vision? These two men are sitting there and they're blind. And they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Other people around the crowd say, shh, be quiet. Jesus doesn't have time for you. He's not going to turn around for you. And they cry out all the louder. Why would they do that? Because they know who they are. They know their own condition, and they've learned who He is. Right? Verse 30, And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, this is the one who healed the other blind folks. This is the one who made the deaf to hear, and the blind to see, and the lame to walk. And so they will not be silenced because they want to see clearly. They want to understand what He can do in the healing process. And so they believe he can make things right. There's the question for you this morning. Will you allow Jesus to correct your vision? Do you believe that he can? You see, they're not seeking power or pleasure or approval. They're seeking what? In verse 30 and 31, they're seeking mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. And so what does Jesus say in verse 32? Stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And church, I wonder this morning if Jesus were to come into here and he were to address you personally and he would say, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Your answer to Jesus, if you're honest before him, not what would you want the pastor to hear you say you want Jesus to do for you. If Jesus, the king of the universe, were to walk up to you and say, what can I do for you? Your answer would reveal what you really believe about reality. What's important? 
what your life is about. And so these men, knowing that they need mercy, say, Lord, give us our sight. Don't miss verse 34. Jesus, in pity, that is the compassion we've seen over and over in him, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and what? Followed him. This has been Matthew's point. As we close this major section of his gospel, it's been Matthew's point, the entire gospel. We are called to follow him. They follow him. Matthew is pointing out that these men who are crying out for mercy, now given sight, follow, leave everything and follow Jesus. You see, if you will allow Jesus to correct your sight, To be the lens through which you see your life, your relationships, your identity, your time, your talent, your treasure. I believe you will follow him. Because he's corrected your sight and shown you what history is about. He's shown you what your life is about. And so this morning I want to invite you to follow him. But before you follow him, you will walk out of this place the same as you walked in it. Unless you allow him to correct your vision to see all of your life. For the king. 